disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. But across the world, really, we've seen a record number of new billionaires and millionaires. Uh, so they've done very well because everything that they owned and they were able to keep their jobs has gone up in value. Home prices are up 17% from a year ago. The stock market's up 70% from its March 2020 lows. So if you're one of those people, you've done very well. On the bottom part of the K-shape, where the K points downwards, are the folks that are right on the edge of poverty. Uh, and that's, we're gonna see a poverty rate of about 14% in 2021. It's worse even for black and Hispanic families, again, who are in the services part of the economy, couldn't necessarily work from home, maybe lost their jobs in the restaurant or hospitality industry. They're the ones that are not participating in the recovery. That's the way it is in New York, which is a city of extremes. Really, that's the way it is across the country right now. What the SPAC is Dogecoin? You feeling a bit too K-shaped, for better or worse? Daddy, what's inflation? NFT? WTF? These and other pressing bull market questions for Investopedia Editor-in-Chief Caleb Silver. Please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to Spotify, NPR One, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And hello to our radio listeners in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., Asheville, North Carolina, and way out west in Ventura, California. Message me if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from, let's call it WFH, Remote NYC North, is a frequent guest on the show. Love having him on, Caleb Silver. Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and a past life. He ran business news coverage at CNN. Uh, We very nearly crossed paths at Bloomberg, but now he has his hands full at Investopedia with so many new investors and so much new terminology and jargon in the market that traffic is at a record. Sir, did I fill in all the blanks? Okay. Absolutely. And I'm talking to you from Central Harlem about a block and a half from Alexander Hamilton's house. So I feel like we're talking about the economy, we're talking about the market, all the things that he helped create in this country. And I'm just a couple blocks away from where he uh, used to raise his sheep, so to speak. Oh, wow. So Manhattan, last we spoke, I mean, you were just wowed. I, I think you forayed into Midtown somewhere. It was still a ghost town. And I, I've heard people tell me that they've gone in Monday morning. So the rare law firm or investment management firm that does hold a distance meeting that the place feels like it would on a Sunday morning now feels a little like a Sunday, Saturday morning, though there are people out and you see people throughout the Upper West Side, down in the West Village, people are out eating. Uh, They're spending money at restaurants, thank God. You can see folks getting their exercise on because it's spring in New York City and you know what that means. So you feel these pockets of life coming back and and the economy coming back around Brooklyn, around parts of Queens and around uh, different areas of Manhattan. And it feels good. Plus, you know, we're in full bloom here. So this is New York at its best, and I've just been rooting for this moment, and we're finally getting there, and hopefully it sticks with us. Here's the disconnect for me, is if you look at 
Wall Street's collapse, say in 2001, 2002, in 2008, and 2009, and we now learn of Bernie Madoff incidentally passing away in prison. I, Wall Street has often taken down the entire island because people without bonuses, people not expecting to be as flush, uh, you get a stagnancy in uh, uh, you know apartment prices and everything. What's disconnected this time around is Wall Street is having an epic run since the onset of the pandemic. You saw the Goldman Sachs uh, uh, junior banker grievance that the hours are crazy, what with SPACs and all these different deals. A, a lot has been written, including with you guys, of how the broader economy and the torpor of the economy is disconnected from the, just the sheer amount of deal flow. And I just think it's interesting. Typically, that money would make it all up and down the island with real estate and memberships to various things and, and um, weekend retreats in Montauk. And that, that all is pretty muted right now. Yeah, it is. And you definitely feel the K-shaped recovery of all cities. You're going to feel it the most here. We see that the high-end apartments have been selling very quickly across Brooklyn, across Manhattan on the Upper West and Upper East Sides. But you also see how it's coming down now, but a record number of apartment vacancies and landlords throwing two, three months of free rent at potential tenants to bring them back because there was this exodus that went on in the city. Plus, you're also finding the K-shaped recovery for the services uh, employees, and that's you know that's a few hundred thousand people in New York City that just aren't back to work, and that hurts the most. Watching these folks that really had never had the equity, never had the investments, never had the opportunity to grow their wealth in this town, they're the ones who took it the, the hardest here during the pandemic. That part of the city still feels like it's going to take a long time to come back, and we track this through a uh, New York City Economic Recovery Index we do at New York One, looking week to week. Where's the strength in the recovery? And it's just not in the labor market here, but you're starting to see it in restaurants. You're starting to see it in the tolls. You're starting to see it in people using the subways. The city is still about only about 60% of the way back. So here's the interesting thing. Uh, you specialize for a living in kind of unpacking jargon for people and do it for our radio listenership, if you will. K-shape recovery. You and I understand what that is. It was being coined tremendously in, in 2020 when the broader economy took a huge jobs hit. It was very nearly on the brink of depression, but we saw asset prices. I mean, you talk about housing, you talk about stocks, you talk about the NASDAQ, Tesla, everything just skyrocket. So describe K-shaped. Yeah, the K-shaped is what, if you think about the letter K, you have part of the K that points upwards. That's the, you know, those are folks that, are, that were able to work from home, that probably earn a fair amount of money, the higher tax brackets, who also have investments, you know, who are active participants in the market and have long-term investments, probably own their home or homes, probably maybe own businesses or they're, you know, maybe have some equity interests in other places. They've done very well through this pandemic, not just in New York, but across the world, really. We've seen a record number of new billionaires and millionaires. Uh, so they've done very well because everything that they owned and they were able to keep their jobs has gone up in value. Home prices are up 17% from a year ago. The stock market's up 70% from its March 2020 lows. So if you're one of those people, you've done very well. On the bottom part of the K-shape, where the K points downwards, are the folks that are right on the edge of poverty. Uh, and that's we're going to see a poverty rate of about 14% in 2021. It's worse even for Black and Hispanic families, again, who are in the services part of the economy couldn't necessarily work from home, maybe lost their jobs in the restaurant or hospitality industry. They're the ones that are not participating in the recovery. That's the way it is in New York, which is a city of extremes. Really, that's the way it is across the country right now. You know, I've been following markets now, I'd say, for about 25 years. And I never understand that the Federal Reserve, which is the chief, I mean, it, it much more than the White House, much more than fiscal policy, it can open up the floodgates to all sorts of stimulus. And you saw after the financial crisis, 
not just with taking interest rates to zero, but with buying bonds and doing extraordinary things. This intervention has been especially extraordinary in smoking people out of the safety of of minuscule yielding, you know, government bonds and other other similar securities. What I don't understand, Caleb, is isn't that just a it's kind of a blunt instrument. It's not helping people who are on the brink of poverty or who are dealing with childcare issues and Zoom school. It is overwhelmingly helping asset class holders. I mean, those who are able to refinance a mortgage, those who are able to go out and suddenly a home that was Let's say five hundred thousand dollars. They want to buy an eight hundred thousand dollar home because prices have, have uh, you know, interest rates have fallen and mortgage rates have fallen. And then to say nothing of the Nasdaq, which is up enormously, or Tesla stock, which is up six or seven fold. Several Nasdaq components that are worth well north of one and a half trillion dollars. But what about wages? What about jobs? How does how does the blood tool of interest rate reduction help that? Well. The Fed really did help the capital markets and really did help the economy sort of stay stable throughout the worst parts of the crisis by making sure that they were making it possible for banks to loan to one another. Back in 2008, as you remember, the banks stopped loaning to one another. That froze everything in place. And then we started to see bank failures, mortgage failures, et cetera. They wanted to make sure that that didn't happen again. So they addressed that, which greases the skids of the capital markets and lays a safety net for equity and bond investors. Because if the Fed is going to keep pumping money into the system, keep rates low, and also be the buyer of last resorts for government bonds and mortgage bonds, then there really is there there is a safety net so investors can continue to push asset prices higher. I know that's a little complicated, but at the end of the day, it wasn't addressing this K-shaped recovery and the fact that so many people on the bottom part of this are not participating in it. You're starting to see the Biden administration, not starting, they're doing it, putting these policies in place, whether it's the 2.2 trillion dollar bill, the infrastructure plan, the prospect of higher taxes and what that money is going to go for, its latest budget. These are all there to address uh, lower income folks. These are all there to address sort of the income inequality. The problem is a lot of these things, you know, that cart, that that horse has left the barn and it's very hard to, to put that back, to correct that in the middle of a recovery when asset prices are skyrocketing. It's a huge challenge. But I think that's where you see the, the difference between what monetary policy can do, which the Fed runs, and what uh, fiscal policy, which is what you know the, the, the government and the Treasury, that's what they're involved with. You see that push-pull of those two things combating each other. But why isn't the Fed incenting employers maybe more directly? I understand transitively that if companies are feeling flush and they have record amounts of cash on their balance sheets and their stock uh, market capitalizations are at record highs, maybe they'll feel more confident to go invest in human capital. But you haven't seen that in the past. If anything, you've seen this other cycle of share buybacks. You saw it with the airline industry, which desperately needed a bailout last year when travel internationally was at a standstill. But critics were saying, well, look how much of your free cash flow you plowed back into share buybacks and dividends over the past six or seven years. Why should we give you taxpayer backstop money now? Right. You, it's, a, it's a tricky question because the Fed, when it did make that money available and in some of the early days of the crisis, it did prevent banks from doing share buybacks. It did prevent dividend increases. They're starting to loosen the restrictions on that. So you did have that, but that doesn't translate all the way down to some of the small businesses and even some of the larger companies that did have layoffs and did have furloughs. Some of them that took the PPP money had to guarantee that they were keeping their staffs in place. But that was a very kind of loose program in the early days of the crisis, so really hard to control all of that. And it's a different type of economy in the U.S. than it is sort of in Europe, where you know the, the stimulus money, the government money that was going to the companies, was to guarantee that they would pay 80 90% of their, 
the salaries of their employees. It's very different here in the US, one, because we just don't have those types of guarantees with companies, public companies anymore. And there's a lot of contract employees. Think about an Amazon that has all these contractors who do the delivering and who work in some of the warehouses. It's very different than it is in, a, in a, an economy like Europe, where it really still is the company taking care of the, the employee. I'm going to quote John Ehrlichman, who's very popularly followed on uh, Twitter. I think both of us crossed paths with him at Bloomberg. Uh, value of $1,000, Caleb Silver, invested five years ago. Ethereum, $274,000. Bitcoin, $148,000. Shopify of Canada, just under $42,000. AMD, $28,639. Etsy, $26,000. NVIDIA, $17,000. Tesla, $15,000. Apple, $5,000. Google, $3,000. I mean, those numbers really bulge your eyeballs out of the socket at the very top, this, this blockchain Bitcoin trade. And again, if we were having cocktail parties right now, I have no doubt that people would be buttonholing you and asking, what the heck? Go ahead and dad-splain me on Bitcoin and Dogecoin and all these other things that I'm sure people are emailing you about incessantly. Yeah, I was just looking, Robin, and this 10 out of the top 20 most popular articles on Investopedia are all about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, how to buy, what to buy, what's the difference between a this coin or a that coin. So the interest is high. It's been crazy for the past, I would say, 12 months. And this reminds me of 2017 when we first felt that real Bitcoin mania setting on. So investors are really interested in it. And can I explain why the, the prices are so high? Well, Certainly, Bitcoin has gotten that institutional adoption that everybody was waiting for. And when, when you hear Fidelity getting into the business of allowing its customers to, to bank Bitcoin, or when you hear about a Goldman Sachs that is giving uh, you know, its high net worth customers the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin, or even a uh, Bank of New York Mellon, Alexander Hamilton's bank that he started, the first bank in the United States that's now offering that, then you know Bitcoin has arrived as an asset class, even though there's no underlying asset beneath it. But you're seeing this big institutional adoption of Bitcoin. Now, the other coins that are trading high with it, Ethereum, there are many reasons why it is also trading high and at all-time highs. Uh, there's folks in the financial advice community that think that it will be one of the key tokens that is used in the future. So you have that. But then you have all these other what we call altcoins, like a Dogecoin, which is really nothing. If you remember those, uh, those sea monkeys that were advertised in the back of the cartoons when we were little, it's oh, kind of yes. like that. They're kind of cute uh, Pikachu dolls or or sea monkey dolls that people just trade for fun, and you can use some of that Dogecoin money to buy things at a Dallas Mavericks game. There is no value there at all, so that's more for fun and for trading. But you've seen the rise of all these coins and all this interest in cryptocurrencies because of a lot of different things. The definition, the question about what is money, which is so fundamental to the way we live and the way we work these days, is a really important one. And what's one of the most popular questions, Robin, on Investopedia? What is money? And I don't think people are saying necessarily, what is this thing, money, that we exchange you know, for products? I think they're asking uh, the, the metaphysical question of, what is money? Is it legal tender? Is it a hard asset like a gold? Or is it this, this understanding that, that uh, happens with Bitcoin holders and traders and, and people who participate in the blockchain that it's about authenticity and the digital signature on something that gives it value? And that's why you're seeing NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, trading at sky high prices. The notion of what is money is changing every day and faster and faster, and Bitcoin is really on the uh, on the pointy end of that. You know, I'm still stumped on what is love, baby, don't hurt me. And I think that's a kind of a mid-90s thing, Caleb. But you're a young guy. You might not remember that. But again, where's the pain in this? Does the dollar or euro 
not sufficiently handling? I mean, it's it not a store of value enough. Are people doing this because they're bored? Is it uh, because they're worried about fiat currency and inflation? Is it just a Rorschach of whatever you want it to be? I mean, what is the underlying pain slash value proposition of these newfangled, again, Dogecoin? It has a Shiba Inu on it. And uh, yes, you could use it at Dallas Mavericks games, but it also, you know, channeling the inner Louis Rukeyser, it seems like we're going to be looking back at these and, and saying, what the heck were we thinking? Or or maybe not? Yeah, we. I think for some of them, we'll definitely be scratching our heads just like we were with the sock puppet in 1999-2000. Uh, thank God that didn't last very long. But I think a part of this, a part of the digital currency fascination, if you think back when this was started in the in sort of the ashes of the great financial crisis was this disbelief in a lot of investors and a lot of people in general about money and the solidity of the financial system and the you know the validity of the stock market and whether it was a rigged game or not. So you see these digital currencies born out of that. But also when you think about one of the key reasons Bitcoin and the other digital currencies were invented was because of money transfers. And there are so much money transfer going on between the US and other countries around the world or other countries, country to country. There is so much of that going on. It's it's a very it's got a lot of friction uh, with in terms of the fees that you pay and all the different companies you pass through. So Bitcoin was sort of came out of that as a solution to reducing the friction of money transfers between one country or another, or one individual or another. And that sort of caught its moment, obviously, in 2017, when it became very popular and we saw the price rise to about 20,000. And then it went away. But now it's back because institutions believe in this as well. The fact that people are going to want other assets and other means of conducting commerce and storing wealth, that you're starting to see these big institutions adopt these cryptocurrencies, that's huge. And so some of them will definitely not make it, but I bet you we'll be talking about Bitcoin in five to 10 years. So didn't gold traditionally serve this purpose or platinum or Krugerrands or other things that were internationally recognized? I mean, you know, I can't Venmo uh, a, a black market counterpart in Pyongyang, North Korea, but I can, you know, somehow get secreted gold to that person, right? I mean, do you really need these things? You, I think when you think about gold, it still is a hard asset that has to be mined for, has to be stored, has to be priced, right? It's complicated, gold. And, and it's also you know a 20th century store of value. We don't really you know pin it to the dollar anymore. So I think there's a lot of folks, it's still the major currency. It's still you know the most important, most widely circulated, uh, most trusted currency out there in the world, the dollar. But gold you know, is this is a precious commodity, you still have to mine for it. And I think when you think about the way the world's working in terms of the way we, we navigate our financial lives through our phones or through our laptop computers or through voice recognition, this is kind of where it's all going towards digital uh, currencies on digital platforms that have our signatures on them. And that's kind of what, what we'll grow into in the 21st century. You know, just to dogleg on this conversation on Bitcoin and Ethereum, does the underlying value is that this this kind of prefab scarcity? You know, I understand that gold is intrinsically scarce. They still say all of the gold ever mined can, you know, be packed into a, a football stadium or something. But the fact that maybe people back in two thousand nine or two thousand ten decided in the inception of these uh, blockchain currencies that they would they would be scarce. There would only be a certain number that were issued with a strict digital ledger. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everybody decides to get together and call it scarce and valuable, then it has to be? Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, and I've talked to a bunch of smart people, much smarter than me about this. Uh, Mohammed El-Aryan would, would tell you this, Aswat the Mordoran from, from New York University. When you think about these digital currencies and the scarcity, the only value they have because they're not backed by gold or they're not backed by the dollar per se, 
is the belief that somebody else is willing to pay you more for it than than what you own it for. So it's almost like the greater fool theory in some degree, but now it's so widespread and so widely held that we're all kind of a part of that theory. Uh, if you own it or if you hold it, that you're you're believing that everybody else also believes in this in the same value proposition, and that takes a lot of credibility. But I think we've made that leap, or a lot of investors have made that leap, including some of the biggest ones in the world, that that's the way it's going to be. Is the greater fool theory again to give you a chance to define and expound on something? Isn't it synonymous with speculation? You might not believe the long term value of something, but if you can pawn it off to someone else at a premium, then you're happy to see this this music continue. Absolutely. And and eventually one day the the music may stop and we all might not have a chair to sit in. Um, but that happens in every cycle and almost every asset class. We could talk about tulips. We could talk about, you know, uh, you know, dot-com stocks in the 1990s. We could talk about the railroad stocks or the auto stocks in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of people couldn't believe that we'd be rolling around on four wheels and making these machines en masse. I'm not saying this is akin to that, but it is in the fact that there is a mania around it. Asset prices have exploded across some of these cryptocurrencies and across public equities for that matter in some cases. And there is this belief that I'm going to keep dancing as long as everybody else is, but you get enough people dancing and the music almost can't stop. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia, the financial portal that is seeing record traffic with a record boom, a re the return of the individual investor, which you thought would never happen, uh, Caleb. I, you know, you and I remember uh, NASDAQ 5,000 at the turn of the century, and then it fell to, uh, I guess, around 1,000 within a few years. And people were we're saying we're not going to see Nasdaq 5000 within decades and we're nearly at 15000 and people are talking about these things i guess being at home the the pandemic also uh, gave a, people an incentive to invest and to speculate tell us how you know the robin hood factor and how that works yeah well robin hood you know was one of the first platforms to offer free trading but the big investment platforms followed soon after fidelity and schwab and now trading is free so you open those floodgates where there's no trading commissions and investors feel like it's a lot easier to, you know, to make decisions to trade or invest in stocks. So you have that. You also had the fact that we had a pandemic. A lot of people were working from home. A lot of people lost their jobs. There was no sports to bet on. There was this whole movement, hmm. you know, among some day traders, you know, for the folks that were were uh, sports bettors, they were looking for some action. So you had all of those things. Plus you had stimulus payments coming to folks that had we had the ability. Wait, 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 wait! You gotta add. You gotta add a new. You gotta add a new word to the lexicon on your site. Of course, stimmy. It's my favorite word to emerge from the past year. Stimmy, we love diamond hands. We have a whole lexicon of all of the new <laughs> trading, uh, trading terms that were invented. Uh, we by tried these to come up with, with a, with a dance. We tried to come up with a dance, Caleb, called the stimmy shimmy, but it never picked up. It's one of those tweets that died an agonizing death. But go ahead. Uh, maybe we can get uh, MC Hammer to do the song, and then he can create the dance, and you and I will start our own little TikTok movement on there. I'm down sure, with that. Sure, sure. What's TikTok? <laughs> well, wait for TikTok. You can just play that afterwards. But so, what is Robin Hood, and how did I know? I yes, I know the commission was dying. We talked about it before. Whether Schwab, you know, Ameritrade, Morgan Stanley, E Trade, whatever, all those things, Vanguard for years did not charge me a commission. But you still have to have money. You still have to have liquid assets to trade and to lose money. How is it that young people are coming in here and betting seemingly with leverage and putting up these TikToks about becoming Robin Hood millionaires? Well, that's the un that's the that's the unfortunate side of this because, you know, for everyone that does that, there's probably about a thousand new investors or traders behind them that follow their advice or followed somebody else's advice 
that they saw across some social media platform or on a trading forum who actually don't know what they're doing and got themselves into a lot of trouble, lost a lot of money, or even worse. And we've heard those stories too. So you have these trading platforms that, you know, Robinhood doesn't do it anymore, but every time you made a trade, they'd rain digital confetti and balloons down on you on your screen to congratulate you for making the transaction. Well, that kind of digital reinforcement, you know, only leads to more behavior like that, which is, you know, can get people in a lot of trouble. So we had that at the same time, it is great that we do have the return of the individual investor and we do have folks participating in the market because we believe at Investopedia, and I'm not being Pollyannish about this, that it's the best way to grow wealth over time. The earlier you start, the more di discipline you have, the, the more fun it is and the more ability you have to really grow wealth over time through investing. We actually believe that. So that's why we've seen a lot of traffic. People are trying now to learn what to do now that they may have the time, they may have the money from their stimulus payments, or they may have done well in the last year because asset prices have risen since the bottom of the bear market last March, that they want to continue to do this. So that's why we're seeing the traffic. Do these platforms contribute to that in a healthy way? Some of them do, but they all need to do a better job of financial literacy and education. It's Financial Literacy Month right now. But what we're really talking about is make sure people don't put themselves in a position to lose the little money they have if they're investing just you know just what they can do, or don't put them in a position where they get burned right away in the market and they turn their back on it and never invest again, because that could be one of the worst outcomes from this. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Friendster, whatever you want at handle fulldradio. My guest is Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. Uh, in a past life, he was running business news at CNN, where he crossed paths with all manner of luminaries, Myron Kandel, Christine Romans. We very nearly crossed paths at Bloomberg. He's a regular on this show, and I love having Caleb on because he can volley any sort of serve. And so you walked right into my next question with the individual investor. This is, Caleb, a game of basis points. And very few people, if you pull them out there, realize you can double your money every 10 years if it compounds at just 7.2%, you know, the rule of 72. And yet I see this article, uh, Ilana Durer had it uh, in late March on Investopedia, said retail investors are underperforming the market. The average retail investor underperformed the S&P 500 by 11% since the onset of the pandemic. Right. So we saw a lot of people, new people joining the market as we've been talking about, but because a lot of new folks, and we've been surveying our readers this entire time for the past 13 or 14 months, a lot of new investors and traders do a lot of portfolio turnover, right? They trade in and out of their portfolio very often. And that's a great way both to have to pay taxes on your gains, short-term capital gains, but also to lose money because you never can time the market. We always say, Time in the market is better than timing the market unless you're one of those you know, geniuses that's able to pick that day, that moment, that hour of the day when a security or an index hits its low and starts screaming up higher. You're never really able to do that. Only a few people are lucky enough to be able to do that. So a lot of folks that were turning their portfolio over, trying to trade in and out of stocks, make the quick buck, actually ended up losing money. And that's not just this year. That happens all the time. But because so many new people joined the market in 2020 and early 2021, chasing these returns, a lot of them lost money, and that's unfortunate. You know, we were at a peak of net purchases of U.S. stocks by retail investors uh, in early February at $30 billion. So we're near all-time highs right now. As a point of comparison, let's take it back five years ago, we were around, what, $3, 4000000000 billion? I just 
you know, I, I don't know what the tipping point was, Caleb, because so many articles have lamented just the death of the individual investor, that Vanguard and the other passive players have done so well, because you would thought that this idea that just be the market, don't try to beat the market, was just being espoused by people en masse. Right. But don't forget the fact that about half the country, even a little bit more, about of is invested one way or the other in the stock market. If you're a if you have a pension plan, then you're invested in the stock market. You have a 401k plan, you're invested probably in the stock market. So one way or the other, you're in it. So, But what we don't have is just a lot of individuals, but we do now, but we didn't have in the past, a lot of individuals starting their own brokerage accounts, starting their own uh, either 529 plans where they're investing for their children. You didn't have that much participation, though it's been growing. So the past year has really brought the a lot of these people who wouldn't normally be market participants into the stock market for the first time, and you're getting that additional participation. But still, as you know, institutions really run the stock market. They own the majority of it. Yet at the same time, a lot of us are invested our money with those institutions, like a BlackRock, a Goldman Sachs, a Fidelity, or a Vanguard. Mm. You know, you have you had this headline there that uh, Colin Kaepernick, latest athlete to form a SPAC. The former football player seeks to raise $250 million in an IPO. Uh, pray tell, uh, what is a special purpose acquisition company? I mean, the likes of Goldman Sachs and and others that had only had you know crazy dreams of going public are suddenly talking about this left and right. Yeah, SPACs are, are the hot new investment vehicle. They've been around for a while, but we call them special purpose acquisition companies. As you said, think of them as blank check companies. These are companies that are formed by a group of investors with the purpose of acquiring another company out there, a private or even a public company, and taking it public. And it's a faster way to what we call a public offering of stock. You hear about classic IPOs where a company goes on a roadshow and tries to get investors to buy its stock before its debut. Well, in a SPAC, you don't do that. You sell warrants or the ability to buy shares of this company you're about to take public to a group of investors, and then you have a public debut. It's a really fast way to do that. And you're seeing a lot of companies in the hottest part of the market, which are electric vehicles, cannabis, space travel. That's where you're seeing a lot of SPACs formed. And you're seeing a lot of celebrities like a Kaepernick, like Shaquille O'Neal, even an A-Rod get behind these SPACs, put their names behind them, which you know the SEC is now warning about because this is a market that could easily get out of control. You know, the SPAC frenzy you guys wrote shows no signs of slowing down this year after gaining momentum last year. So far in 2021, and this is already dated, SPACs have raised more than $38 billion through 128 IPOs. We did mention Colin Kaepernick's SPAC, but then there's Shaquille O'Neal's Forest Road Acquisition Corp announcing a merger with Beachbody Group in a deal valuing the fitness and nutrition business at $3 billion. Meanwhile, former Yankee star A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, said in a regulatory filing that he's raising $500 million for a SPAC called Slam Corp, targeting a company in the, quote, sports, media, and entertainment, technology, and health and wellness industries, close quote. And again, cannabis SPAC is a whole other sandbox. Uh, the EV market, kind of in the coattails of Tesla's enormous run as the most valuable car maker on the planet, you know, with its CEO now toggling in and out of being the wealthiest person on the planet. Caleb, wasn't there some degree of due diligence that a Wall Street IPO and roadshow provided you? Wasn't there a filtering system or catch basin that SPACs kind of go around this? I mean, I don't understand how it's just legal for a bunch of guys to create a blank check company and say, well, we're going to go out. It's going to be public and we're going to acquire a company. And because we acquire it, you know, today we might be SPAC Corp and tomorrow we'll be 
you know, Cannabis Media LLC just because we acquired it. It, it seems it avoids the S1 and all these other things you have to jump over to become a, a formally public company in the old traditional way. Great idea on the cannabis media spec. Write that down. We'll talk about that later. But oh, other, um, others have tried it. It's, it's, I'm sure, you know, you don't want to be a pink sheet listed in Boca Raton, you know, that's, that's worth $600,000, but go ahead. Yeah. They, they, there are regulations around SPACs, but at the end of the day, you are investing in the management team and their ability to make the acquisition on the company that they're targeting, take it public and then be a successful going concern. But what you're really not investing in when you're investing in a SPAC necessarily is the performance of the company. When we're talking about company fundamentals, Mm. you're investing in this public vehicle that a lot of investors are going to get hyped by it, but it's very different from investing in a classic Coca-Cola type stock where you're looking at the dividends, you're looking at the growth of sales, you're looking at all these things. Now, the target companies do have to perform over time, but you are really investing in the idea of getting this company to the public markets as fast as possible because you think other investors are going to want to participate as well. A lot of good companies have come from SPACs, and you know, you've know you seen a lot of established companies, even like a DraftKings, the online gambling site, merge into a SPAC. So you know, you're seeing real businesses jump into this because it's the faster path to get public. And I think some would argue, and I don't disagree that there was a level of checks and balances with the classic IPO process. But some would argue that that was horribly inefficient. It costs investors money at the end of the day because you had to fly these people around on a private jet to visit investors around the world, and you had to go through all these different hurdles just to make this big public debut. I think you that that had a lot of friction too. I'm not saying this is completely safe, and there are definitely plenty of warnings around it, but it is a sign of the times that people want that company to get public as fast as possible, and SPACs are the natural solution in a 2020 where everything seems sped up. You know, it's funny. Uh, Pets.com is that poster child for year 2000 over ebullience, you know, 1999. Toys, toys.com, these lamentable IPOs and all the different broadband plays that, that went under. Uh, I imagine in this free time, there must be some sort of uh, a ridiculous valuation added to this Pets.com. Maybe the original sock puppet is worth a crazy number. I'm sure if we looked it up. But I have no doubt that you could take the NFT of that Super Bowl ad by E-Trade, or what is it, the Pets.com sock puppet, or whatever the heck it was back then. I don't know, the E-Trade monkey. I forget it's so long ago. And the NFT would drive a crazy bidding war. Explain NFT to us. The the non-fungible token would definitely be worth more than the sock puppet itself today, just because that's the world we're living in. Well, going back to our conversation about Bitcoin and digital currencies, One of the things about non-fungible tokens is the authenticity that they provide, right? So in a world where everything's digital and you can have deep fakes almost on anything, whether it's in the digital world or in the real world, non-fungible tokens actually give you the authenticity on a piece of work. And I always thought the the, the best promise of the blockchain and, and all this cryptocurrency technology was the fact that you could have digital signatures that would tell people that this was produced on this day by this person, signed. Uh, and, and everybody agrees to the authenticity because it's there on the blockchain for everybody to see with full transparency. That's what you're starting to see with non-fungible tokens. It has gone way too far, and we're seeing works of art sold for $60 million, $80 million. We're seeing you know, Jack Dorsey's original tweet. He's the CEO and one of the founders of Twitter selling for a couple million dollars. Uh, just the, the, the digital signature itself, because people in this world, they want to hold on to something that's real, and the non-fungible token provides that sense of, this is a one of one, and it therefore has value, not just because we said it is, but because everybody who is on this blockchain agrees that this is a one of one unique object in the world. There'll never be another one like it. 
and then we can assign a value to it. Plus, Robin, there's a lot of money sloshing around there. People have made fortunes, not just in the last year, in the last 10 years and across you know, businesses of all sorts. They got money for things like this, and this to them is fun. Uh, fun, but I don't understand the pain or the need. I'm just, you know, I typed in NFT right now in Google News. Get this, the Leave Britney Alone, the iconic Leave Britney Alone sobbing video on YouTube, the video by Chris Crocker, sold as an NFT for over $44,000. What was the need uh, for minting this as an NFT? It's part of, you know, I, uh, Crocker owns it, was the was the creator of this video, but it, it got billions and billions of views over YouTube and, and uh, Vimeo and 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 the other things, who is clamoring for this thing to kind of be uh, blockchained and and uh, put on some sort of ledger and codified as an NFT? I thought it's already out there in the public domain. Absolutely, but if you want to own the original, like you want to own the original Mickey Mantle baseball card, then that's basically what an NFT is. It is the original, even of a digital thing, like a tweet, like a JPEG of LeBron James dunking. It's a one of one. There are plenty of them out there. There are plenty of dupes. Uh, but if you want to say you own the one of one and people, especially digital enthusiasts, they believe in this and the fact that it's hard to claim ownership over anything. So this is one way to do it in a way that everybody that's participating in that economy agrees. And that participation and that authenticity is happening on the blockchain. And that's where you're going to see a lot of this take off. Think about real estate. Think about precious art going forward. This is where it's probably headed because people want that proof that this is a one of one and I have the original. Otherwise, it's too easy to fake things in twenty in the 21st century. It does beg the question. You have seen a handful of uh, veteran recording artists sell, you know, sell their, what is it, their master files and everything. If the NFT craze can kind of spill over into indie artists and others who are having a vexingly difficult time uh, monetizing their work, if you're saying that we're willing to put it up to fund, you know, maybe a movie or something else, we're willing to auction it as an NFT if that can be the next boomlet, if you will. Absolutely. Who knows where this will go in the next 10, 20 years, but I have a feeling that's going to be a lot more common than we think it is today, because it's like one of those crazy technologies that makes no sense when you're talking about it. You and I are having trouble making sense of it right here in this conversation, but there are plenty of people that do believe in it and there's real money flowing after it. Will it be the tulip craze? Will it be something that ends in in despair, I'm sure there'll be plenty of that, but there'll also be some people who have already made a lot of money and people that will make even more from this because it is kind of the way that digital enthusiasts live and breathe in this world. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Investopedia's editor-in-chief, Caleb Silver, a man on demand. You see him all over the news. He has his podcast. Everyone has, is, is, I'm sure, blitzing you with questions. What's an NFT? What's a fungible token? What's a SPAC? Uh, what's a sock puppet? Uh, I do have, uh, you know, to, to kind of shift this in something that I know is really dear, near and dear to your heart, uh, sustainability and clean tech. And it seems like we are at a tipping point. We saw news from, I think it was BlackRock this week with uh, the Sovereign Investing Fund of Singapore to invest in carbon capture technologies. We've had uh, a recent clean tech VC, Josh Felser, on the show that they're actually animal spirits chasing not just, you know, baseball card type concepts and ephemera like this leave Britney alone <laughs> YouTube NFT, but real kind of change the world solutions. That's a, a nice benefit of all this, you know, extra trillion dollars of, of of free money sloshing around the planet. Yeah. Some of that is you're following the money as an investor because you know the Biden administration has been talking about this green energy investment and the infrastructure trillions that they plan to spend and the conversion of the economy into a green economy. That you knew was coming. So a lot of money has followed that. But 
this has been going on for a long time. And you can call it sustainable investing. You can call it ESG, environmental, social, and government governance investing. You can call it conscious capitalism. There are a lot of names for it. But what it amounts to for individual investors is those who want to invest with their heart, those who want to invest with their conscious or their ethics are able to choose the companies that that they want to participate with, whether it's green energy or whether it's companies that are paying attention to uh, gender equality or income inequality. You could really pick your sector, pick your company. It is a, a big theme in investing right now, but the green energy one is huge. And if you've looked at where the money has flown in the last, I would say, six months since uh, you know, right around the election and in the aftermath of the election, it's gone into solar, it's gone into wind, it's gone into carbon capture, it's gone into green energy projects and and microeconomies that are becoming really big right now. And that's great for the industry because hopefully it does produce a lot of jobs and does reduce you know the impacts of climate change and gets us to think a little bit more intelligently as consumers about how we're hurting the planet and what we can do to, to stop doing that. But it's also good to see the money flowing to these places because they it needs that type of liquidity to become a real place for investors uh, to build long-term portfolios. You know, last year, ExxonMobil was unceremoniously booted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the Dow 30, which would have been unthinkable, kind of the, the most prodigal you know, offspring of Standard Oil. And the stock proceeds to rally from its low last spring and summer about 85%. They did not cut the dividend. They did not give in to institutional investors and critics that were saying they were not aggressive enough in their plan going forward for carbon reduction and investing in, in uh, alternative energies. And at the same time, we have seen oil and gas prices skyrocket after you have to cover that bizarre conundrum where it couldn't be given away, I think, in the first 30 or 60 days of the pandemic. Is it just possible that this is your garden variety, that this isn't a true kind of clean tech reckoning, that it's just going to go back to the oil boom and bust and companies going about their normal business that as they have for the past 100 years? I don't think so. I think you're going to see some of that because we are in an economic boom and a lot of people are calling this a commodity super cycle. So I don't think we're going to see prices, the $200 oil we've seen in the past, but we are going to see a lot of consumption and a lot of demand. And we know that OPEC and its allies have been keeping supply down and raise prices. All of that's going to go higher. But I think that the world has changed. And you think about countries, especially in Europe, that are very committed to green tech and clean tech, they've changed their economies around. It's a big priority for the Federal Reserve. It's a big priority for the Biden administration to change the way the U.S. economy works too, so it's not as dependent on fossil fuels. So the money is already there, and you've already seen big changes. And I think the long-term outlook is that you're going to see the continued rise of green tech and green energy, and you're going to see the continued decline of the classic fossil fuel energy complex that we built our modern economies over in the last two centuries. That's just going to—that's just what's happening on a natural scale. The fact that you're seeing more money flowing into the green sectors, even though you've seen oil companies rally since their bottoms and since the beginning of the year, that's a natural movement of, of money in an economic upturn in this cycle that we're in right now, funded by, by all the stimulus money. But uh, the long-term prospects are that more green, less fossil fuels. Caleb, it's interesting too. You know who else was booted from the Dow in 2020 was Pfizer, which then proceeded to become a household name because of its, you know, civilization saving vaccine. Either you're a Pfizer person or you're a Pfizer person, a Moderna person, J and J, which is a bit more contentious right now, uh, be, you know, having been shelled by the FDA. But what does that tell you, the Dow Jones Industrial Average? When I look at it, I know not a lot of money is institutionally benchmarked to it, but it is the first thing that gets mentioned on the evening news. You know, the Dow is at a record high. They took way too long to add Apple 
Tesla is still not in the Dow 30, even though it's by far the biggest car maker on the planet. I don't believe Amazon is in there as a kind of a proxy for retailers, but and yet Salesforce.com is. Do you ever look at it and say kind of the whole methodology, the whole index for all of the press that it gets is just incredibly anachronistic? Yeah. The, the Dow 30 does get all the headlines, and it is the first name we say when we give the market uh, reports at the end of every day or at the beginning of every day. But when, when you look at the Dow 30, it's not the Dow industrials anymore, right? You got drugstores in there, you got banks in there, and it is, you know, some of the classic companies like an ExxonMobil just aren't part of it anymore. But when you look at the market cap and the and the Dow is not a is a price weighted index, not a market cap weighted index, which means it's the price of the stocks that matter more in the Dow. These companies, the ExxonMobils of the world and all the big oil giants and the others, they were not necessarily that influential in terms of their price performance in investors index funds. So that's why you haven't seen that. And they're also slow to move those companies in and out of the Dow because there are still some indexes that are benchmarked to it. But let's talk about the the benchmark index itself, the S&P 500. Energy and oil companies only account for about 2% of the market value of the S&P 500. The top 505, there's 500 505 stocks in the S&P 500. They're they're just a small part of it because investors have put their money in the growth areas of the stock market. The Amazons of the world, the Teslas of the world, the Apples, the Fang stocks, and now a lot of the chip companies. That's just the way the money has flown. The indexes are always slow to reflect that because reflecting it actually makes a very big difference with the institutional index investors that follow these uh, indexes so closely. Is the balcony maybe a little too heavy for this uh, condominium unit? I know that's a tortured metaphor, but I'm looking at the components, the top 10 uh, holdings of the S&P 500 are about 27% of total assets. They are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google Class A, Google Alphabet Class C, Tesla, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan Chase, and Johnson & Johnson. You're buying the S&P 500 as a composite, representative composite of not just the entire US economy, but I guess it gets half of its sales abroad. And yet it's overwhelmingly a tech fund. Yeah, Absolutely. Though you could also argue that Apple is a consumer discretionary stock and Amazon relies on technology, but it's really you know delivering you almost everything under the sun. So they're they're different. You have this concentration though, and it's actually less than it was in the in the height of the 2020 uh, stock market rise of five to ten to fifteen companies that really where all the market cap is concentrated. But Robin, it's been no different. It happened in the 80s with oil companies. We've seen it before in different industries where they dominate like the railroads did in the early part of the 20th century. Concentration is a feature of the stock market, not a bug. So you always see it in the industries or the companies that are hottest. Is it a contraindicator? I'm sure it was concentrated in 2008, oil stocks and cyclicals and commodity stocks before they had a massive bear run. And you saw the last time the S&P 500 was this tech-heavy in terms of concentration, was early 2000. Yeah, it does get a little heavy. Things start to sag a little bit, but the market has this phenomenal way of self-correcting to a certain extent. Sometimes it takes it way too far when the animal spirits get out of control. But tech stocks, those fang stocks we're talking about, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, plus Microsoft and a couple others, they all fell 10% or more to begin 2021. Yet the stock market didn't fall commensurately with it because you had this rally in what we call the cyclical recovery-based stocks. That's the energy stocks, the financials, the home builders, of course, the airline stocks and the cruise stocks. You had this swell of money into the recovery part of the market. And this concentration that lost 10 or more percent didn't hurt us as much. What you have now is a really balanced, robust stock market that's hitting record high after record high. We've hit more than 20 record highs alone in 2021. Are we in a bubble? 
potentially, but everyone seems to be in the same bubble. Caleb, in the five or so minutes we have left with you, and, and these interviews are never long enough. You, I hope you could tell, dear listener, that I really enjoy these. Um, Caleb is right on my wavelength. We could go on for hours and hours. In fact, if you'd like this to continue as a series, maybe we should uh, NFT spack this and, and, and add it to a sub stack, Caleb. But I, I digress because I don't want to waste time. Put it on Clubhouse. Oh, gosh. How many other things can we invoke? But here's a meaning of life question for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it. What, pray tell, is inflation? When did we last have inflation in this country? Is there even an institutional memory of inflation among, say, retail investors? Bond desks? I can't imagine these people are older than 30, 35. When was it last a pernicious thing that existed more than in theory? Right. Great question. And- For folks who are new investors or new to the market or younger folks, you don't know from inflation. You may feel it on a month to month. And we've Mm. definitely seen prices rise throughout the the pandemic, everything from lumber to flour, if you were baking bread a lot during the pandemic, to gas prices. We are seeing a rise in prices, but it's nothing. And that's what inflation is. It's a consistent rise in prices, whether that's for securities, whether that's for commodities, but basically the things we buy. So the the labor department measures that every month. They're always looking at consumer prices. Are they going up and what's driving them up? Food prices are definitely higher. Gas prices are definitely higher. But when you look historically, peel the, the, the chart back to the 1960s and look at inflation today, we are at very historical lows when it comes to prices and in terms of how they're rising. And I know it, not everybody feels that because it doesn't matter if a, if a tank of gas costs you 50 bucks today, but it costs you 30 bucks a week ago, you're feeling inflation. It hurts you. You're feeling it. But if you look at the broader picture, prices really haven't been rising that much. And that's super frustrating. But what is that broad? What is, what is that core everything backed out asterisk inflation that the Fed and the the treasury deals with like what is it is it people get, being able to get raises is there so much money out there that money is just like it's an orgy of money and and uh you know price increases and raises and this vicious spiral of of prices just shooting out i mean from my impression last time this truly happened was in the early 80s yeah that's the last time you you've really felt it and ask anybody that was trying to buy a home in the 80s when interest rates uh, or more, getting a mortgage was a 14, 15% interest, uh, interest rate. That was pretty painful. Or again, when you had those gas lines in the 70s, that's very different. What we're seeing right now is they're, they're not measuring wages. They measure that in the, in the unemployment report, the non-farms payroll report every month. Wage growth has been very stagnant, just barely creeping up a little by little every year, but it's been pretty stagnant when you think about the 2% or so inflation that we've had, the 1.5 to 2% inflation we've had for the past several years, wage growth isn't growing. So they're measuring a consumer basket of goods, things that we pay for on the regular, including food and gas, but they do back that out when they look at other and other measurements. Everything is costing more, but on a relative basis, when you look over time, it really hasn't moved that much. Is it possible, and again, maybe this is old-timey thinking, maybe I'm really dating myself, that Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve are going to have a very difficult time putting this enormous dragon back in that tiny cage. When it comes time to, and he has telegraphed in many ways that we are going to tolerate maybe slightly larger than usual inflation because this was such an extraordinary shock, uh, such an exogenous shock that we have to get back to full employment. But what if you can't control it as easily? What if, you know, again, you're talking about all these asset prices, runaway prices. I didn't even mention that my son wanted a pack of baseball cards and I couldn't find them at Target or Walmart and they were being bid up online. I mean, you're, you're starting to see a, a massive uh, investing frenzy. And I know the Federal Reserve doesn't control bubbles, but clearly 
the amount of money that it puts out there can have uh, an asset inflationary effect, and that could spill over to the broader economy at a point when you know we saw it in the early '80s, and Paul Volcker had to come in, the late Paul Volcker, and slam the brakes and hike interest rates and and bring mortgage rates to the you know the mid-teens. That that is the threat. That's the concern. But everything the Fed says, and it always used, says the right thing. But I would believe in Jerome Powell. He's been pretty transparent that they're not concerned about inflation. That they've been pretty telegraphic in terms of when they're going to lower interest rates right around the end of 2022, 2023. But eventually, yes, we are going to have to pay for all this, and there's a ton of money sloshing around. So how does that happen? It happens through lowering spending, and we're not in a lowering spending type of environment in case you hadn't noticed, or raising taxes. The first place you're going to see higher taxes is on corporations, and you could probably expect that this year or early next year. And then the next place you're going to see higher taxes is in wealthier Americans earning $400,000 a year or more or who have a million dollars a year or more in capital gains. They say that's not happening right now, but it will happen probably in the next two or three years. So we're going to see that. Does that mean that there's going to be a big contraction in the economy? Does that mean that people are going to sell all their stocks to pay for these higher taxes? I don't know. A lot of wealth's been created, and a lot of that wealth is in the hands of some older folks, and it's going to be passed down to younger generations. There's just a lot of money out there, Robin. We're in extreme times, so it's going to be a problem. It's just hard to say when that's going to be a problem. I got to tell you, Caleb, uh, one of my favorite noir movies is, uh, is it uh, Rounders with John Malkovich and Matt Damon. And you remember the Teddy KGB character. Absolutely. There's one point where he's playing poker with the other person and he's like, I feel so unsatisfied. And that's the feeling that I have whenever I end an interview with you. Not because you're a bad guest, au contraire. Uh, you, you're so encyclopedic, investopedic that I didn't even get into merging markets with you. I didn't, I had so many other meaning of life questions. And, you know, I just love the way you cover your stuff. Let me just put it out there and fell a little bit. And let me use it as a foot in the door to insist that you keep coming back on this show. I would be happy to do it. And you inspire me just the way that you communicate with your listeners on your podcast. I've been a fan for years and a follower of yours for years. And I'm glad we're friends. I will come back anytime. You you have a, uh, what is it? A salmon Reuben sandwich waiting for you in Richmond, sir. RVA. I can't wait to get back. Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. Always good to be with you. Likewise. Full disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show airs on NPR One on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Do you want the handle for Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? We got it all, even LinkedIn at Full D Radio. And you can catch us in Northern Virginia and in much of D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. We are in Asheville on WPVM. You can catch us on Low Power Radio in, in SoCal, uh, in Ventura. Uh, holler if you'd like to pick us up on your air. I'm DMable everywhere. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Mm-hmm.